So one way of understanding what we're doing on this retreat is that we're engaged in a process of discovery. We're exploring the terrain of our hearts and minds. We're getting to know what it's like in there, as metaphorically we move out beyond the suburbs of our familiar and comfortable habit patterns. And instead, we're starting to explore all kinds of maybe less familiar terrain. And maybe at times, some completely new territory. And at each stage of this process, we're learning how to navigate these different terrains. So again, metaphorically, at the start of the retreat, maybe it felt like we were just slogging through dense undergrowth, the entangling and the snarling mind states of the hindrances. And I'm guessing those hindrances haven't completely gone But at least at times, and maybe just for a few moments, we've managed to find ourselves higher up the mountainside, where there's more openness above the trees. And at times, we might even be able to stay above the tree line for a while. And that relative freedom from the hindrances opens up new vistas, new views, new perspectives, new understandings of where we've come from and where we're going. So we're now in the terrain of the third noble truth. We're cultivating the conditions that support the release of suffering and that lead to ever-deepening ease and freedom of heart and mind. And some of those conditions that support us to release suffering are what Willa referred to this morning as, quote, mindfulness and its little friends. And I have to say I was a bit confronted to hear that reference to little friends because what we're talking about here are the seven factors of awakening. And I've always thought of them as more like superheroes than little friends. But to be fair, thinking of them as little friends does definitely make them seem more approachable because it's pretty common for people to hear the term awakening factors and almost immediately tune out, thinking something like, I'm still battling the hindrances, so clearly the awakening factors are not relevant for me, maybe maybe in another decade or so. But actually, I'm confident that every one of you here is already experiencing the support of these seven friends, even if you haven't perhaps been recognizing them for what they are. They might not be fully developed into their greatest strength, but all of them have been present for you to varying degrees, or you likely wouldn't still be here on this retreat. I know this might be new information for some of you, so first I'll just list what the seven factors are for context. And as I name them quite slowly, I just invite you, as you hear each one, to notice what effect it has, if any. So for some of the factors, there might be an instant sense of recognition or resonance, whereas for others that might feel less clear, maybe not much effect, or perhaps even confusion. All of that is useful information. So here are the seven awakening factors in the order that they're always presented in. First is sati, or mindfulness. Then investigation, 
then energy. Then joy or rapture, piti. Tranquility. Samadhi or mental absorption. And equanimity. So I'm guessing you recognize at least a couple of them, and for sure the first one, mindfulness, because we've been emphasizing mindfulness every single day. And just to say the order of them is important, because as some of you may have experienced, there's a causal connection between each of these factors, and at times they can develop a natural momentum flowing from one to the other in a kind of spontaneous chain reaction that becomes quite effortless. And at the same time, this powerfully preparing the mind to experience deep ease, peace, and freedom. Because when all seven of these awakening factors are equally in balance, that provides the optimum conditions for transformative insights to arise. The sequence is also important because it groups the factors in terms of their overall effect on our mental energy. So the first factor, mindfulness, is energetically neutral. But then the next three factors of investigation, energy, and joy, they all have the effect of brightening and enlivening the mind. While the subsequent three factors, tranquility, samadhi, and equanimity, they tend to quiet and and calm the mind and develop it into profound stillness and steadiness. So it's worth learning what these seven factors are and learning how they show up for us, attuning to their signature frequencies, because just the simple act of recognition helps them to grow. So I highly recommend that you memorize the list of what the seven factors are in order. And then just from time to time, you might run through them, similar to how we did a moment ago, to practice that skill of recognition. And if you do take this on as a practice, you'll likely find that there's one, at least one, that you regularly forget. And if so, that's a clue, because that's likely to be the one you most need to cultivate. Okay, so now we have some context. I'll go into them in just a bit more detail. Don't worry, though, I'm not going to go into yet another numbered list in exhaustive detail tonight. I'll really just be sketching out an overview, and then we can pick that up again in future talks. So mindfulness comes first. Mindfulness is the crucial factor, because without mindfulness, we wouldn't be able to recognize any of the other awakening factors. But the mindfulness that's being referred to here is not just any old mindfulness, or as Joseph Goldstein calls it, more or less mindfulness, more or less mindfulness. In the context of the awakening factors, it's described as, quote, unremitting mindfulness. Unremitting means not stopping, not weakening, sustained And I like to emphasize sustained and sustainable, 
It needs to be sustainable because we might hear this invitation to develop unremitting mindfulness and immediately feel exhausted just at the idea of that. So for the mindfulness to be unremitting, it has to have a lightness of touch. It's very common for our default approach to be mindful to mindfulness to be either too forced, pressured, and tight, or the other end, too loose, slack, complacent, which, as we know, neither of those are going to bring us the best results. So I was thinking about the image that Eliza brought in this afternoon in that response that Long Po Tui gave to her question about mindfulness. And he said it was like a handrail that we use to climb stairs. That handrail is needed all the way to the top, and we don't let go of it until we've got to the top. But if we extend that metaphor a little bit, if mindfulness is a handrail, and we were to grip that handrail too tightly, holding on for dear life, we're not going to be able to move up the staircase. We'll be just stuck on one step holding on. The opposite extreme, if we just touch the handrail lightly from time to time, it's not going to serve its function. If we trip and fall when we're not holding the handrail, we're going to damage ourselves. So instead, we need a relaxed but steady contact with the handrail all the way to the top. So in some ways, this is a little bit similar to the factors of Vitaka and Vichara and the way Willa uh, named those a few days ago. So she referred to them as um, placing the attention and then attuning to the experience. Just like walking upstairs, we place our hand on the handrail and then we attune to the progress of the body up the stairs. So the hand is naturally accompanying us. Now, how do we know any of this? How do we know whether the mindfulness is sustained and sustainable or not? How do we know where the attention is placed and whether it's attuned or not? We know this through the second factor, the second awakening factor, which is investigation or Dhammavichaya in Pali. Now, this quality of investigation works in different ways on different levels. And it's important to be clear that in this context, the context of the awakening factors, it's not so much thinking about our experience. It's not using the intellect to to analyze it. Instead, it's exploring our experience very directly on an embodied level, as we've been emphasizing over and over And this can give us uh, access to more intuitive understanding, to new information that we probably couldn't have accessed with the intellect alone. So just to say, there is a reciprocal relationship between the hindrances and the awakening factors. By definition, when the hindrances are present, the awakening factors are absent, and vice versa. When the awakening factors are present, the hindrances are absent. And we can use this reciprocal relationship to our advantage as another strategy to help release the hindrances. So we can deliberately orient the chitta to the relevant awakening factor as an antidote. So coming back to the awakening factor of investigation, 
This can be a powerful antidote to the hindrance of sloth and torpor. Just asking the question, what is this? And being curious about how the sloth and torpor are experienced, that can bring some energy into the heart and mind. So in those phases of meditation where we're just nodding and bobbing and drooping, if we can remember just to be curious, what is this? And actually one of my first insight teachers, he used to say, when you find yourself in that phase of bobbing and then jerking yourself back up, hoping nobody's noticed, he said, next time you're down, stay down and just notice what's that like. And actually, it sounds weird, but I tried it and it was surprisingly effective. Just noticing how the body feels when it's slumped and drooped and bent over. So that investigation can help bring more energy to the mind. It's similar with the mind state of boredom, which can be pretty common. Next time you're caught in boredom, silently explore it. How do you know that you're bored? What are the symptoms of boredom for you? How does boredom feel in the body? Are there particular thoughts and emotions that come tend to come with it? So in this way, if we bring in the investigation factor, then boredom can transform into interest and more energy naturally becomes available. So now we're coming into the terrain of the third awakening factor, which is energy or virya. And virya is also translated as tireless energy, heroic effort or endeavor, persistence, strength and exertion. So again, you might just take a moment to pause and notice, are there any responses to hearing words like heroic effort? tireless energy, persistence, vigor, exertion. If you're anything like me, at least early on in my practice, hearing terms like that, I just feel a sudden wave of exhaustion come over me. And pretty often the beginning pricklings of self-judgment, that inner voice that would say, yep, they're giving this talk tonight because of me, because they know I'm not working hard enough. They know I'm not being persistent enough, and I'm certainly not being heroic enough, whatever that means. Now, if you do happen to recognize anything like that in your own experience, it's not surprising, because words like effort or even energy, they can touch some strong and deep conditioning, both individual conditioning and societal conditioning, as we've mentioned previously. So as best you can, try to meet those types of reactions with kindness and appreciating that actually you all are already demonstrating this awakening factor of energy because you're still here and practicing diligently. So at this stage in the retreat, it's almost because of that diligence, as the mind becomes more still and quiet, we start to see some of those deeper layers of conditioning that can distort our approach to meditation. And perhaps the most fundamental distortion that really gets in the way of clear seeing is the tendency to identify with experience 
and to take it personally, to appropriate the meditation practice as mine, my practice, to identify with it and to make it me, who I am. And all of that tends to reinforce the misguided belief that we should be in control of the whole process. There's a challenge here, a seeming paradox, because on one level, yes, the Buddha did give us instructions about what to do. And the three of us have been sharing those instructions with you over this retreat. But as our practice gains some momentum, we start to recognize that the deepest freedom comes from letting go and letting be, and not so much from doing, if there's the uh, wrong amount of energy in that. And this is totally counterintuitive to most people. It's totally countercultural in terms of mainstream society. In everyday life, there's pretty much an addiction to busyness. And it's very difficult not to bring this same doing mentality into our practice. As we keep gently investigating this tendency to control, though, eventually there's a shift. And we can experience very directly the profound benefits that come from moving away from what I call will-driven effort towards what I call dharma-driven effort. So by will-driven effort, I mean that more forceful energy that tends to center around a sense of me, the one who's doing the practice, the one who's responsible for constantly monitoring and micromanaging every aspect of it, trying to get more of this and trying to get less of that, and trying to make the whole thing match some fantasy in our heads about what we think good practice looks like and what we think is supposed to be happening. Now, just from that brief description, you might have a sense of how tiring it is to practice with that constantly self-referencing effort. At some point, though, almost in spite of that effort, enough momentum does develop, and then we're able to relax back and to trust the Dharma to do its work. And this is what I mean by Dharma-driven effort. Now, driven isn't quite the right word here we realize that all we need to do is set up the appropriate conditions. Then we can settle back and enjoy the ride. And as many of you know, it is such a relief to be able to experience this more effortless effort. It brings relief and at times delight. So now we're coming to the awakening factor of pity or joy. And hopefully from what I just described, you have a sense of how as energy and effort become more refined, this quality of skillful joy arises quite naturally of its own accord. Just as with all the factors of awakening, we can't will ourselves to experience joy. We can't force it to come up, but we can set up the conditions that bring it about namely the previous three awakening factors. So the joy that we can experience as an awakening factor is slightly different from the joy of mudita as a brahma-vahara heart quality. So some of the common translations of piti are pleasurable interest, happiness, delight, rapture, joy. 
And there's always an embodied aspect to this quality. It's an energetic quality that's felt in the body in a whole range of different ways. So sometimes it comes as just a light, uplifting energy, a kind of a fizziness rising up through the body. Sometimes it's experienced as showering or tingling energy through the whole body. And sometimes it comes more intensely as waves of bliss. And because it can be such a pleasant experience, it's a powerful antidote to the hindrance of ill will, to the hindrance of anger and fear and aversion of all kinds. Now, at first, the energy of pity can be experienced quite strongly, and the factor of mindfulness needs to be equally strong so that we can stay steady with it. So not falling into liking or disliking, but simply continuing to be present with the different bodily and mental aspects of joy. And at the same time, knowing that like every other conditioned state, it will eventually pass away. So if mindfulness can stay continuous through that whole experience, then eventually pity naturally subsides into the next awakening factor which is the factor of pasadi, or tranquility. And this refers to the mind that has quieted into calm, tranquility, repose, serenity, like a lake that's completely clear and still, so that we can see all the way to the bottom. And you might have a sense from that analogy that it's a very refreshing quality, Yet, I think of all the awakening factors, perhaps tranquility is the easiest to overlook and to underappreciate. Again, in terms of mainstream culture, we're so used to being entertained and stimulated and being consumed by busyness and constant doing, so that when that quietens down or even stops, there can be a sense of, well, now what? Nothing's happening. And sometimes we find that same attitude in our meditation practice too. The mind settles into the quietness and the stillness of tranquility. And then before too long, the attention pops out in search of something more stimulating. And in the practice meetings at this phase, it's very common for people to ask, well, nothing's happening. Now what do I do? And generally, the answer is nothing Nothing except refine the mindfulness to catch that urge to want make to make something else happen, or that urge to get to the next stage of the practice, or to have something more dramatic to report. Instead, resting in the tranquility helps us how to navigate that terrain. How much mindfulness, investigation, energy are needed here to just stay with a serenity, and to notice what beneficial effect does tranquility have on the citta. In my own practice, it took quite a while to appreciate what an important role tranquility plays, not just in refreshing the mind, but also supporting the next factor of samadhi or absorption to arise. How does it do that? by making it much easier to recognize the presence or the absence of the hindrances. 
Again, in terms of ordinary everyday life, it can often seem like the default setting of our minds is a kind of a swirling kaleidoscope of sense desire and aversion and sloth and torpor and restlessness and worry and skeptical doubt and plenty of other afflictive emotions too. But when we stop turning the kaleidoscope, stop the spinning and the mind becomes more still, that very tranquility helps us to see what's going on much more clearly. The suffering of the hindrances becomes so much more obvious and we naturally want to let them go, to experience tranquility instead. So as the mind becomes more tranquil, it's easier to see what's interfering with deepening calm and steadiness. And then as we're able to clear the hindrance out of the way more fully, then the mind very naturally gathers and settles into the awakening factor of samadhi. Now, traditionally, this word samadhi is often translated as concentration. But again, that word can have unfortunate connotations in English, connotations of a kind of a forced or fixed or even fixated attention. Whereas true samadhi the kind of resilient samadhi that the three of us have been emphasizing, that comes about through relaxation and letting go rather than tight focus. So we can understand samadhi as a gathering and settling and steadying and unifying of our awareness that comes about quite naturally as we keep settling into this more embodied mindfulness. Now, whether or not you've touched into the deepest states of samadhi here on retreat yet, every one of us have experienced moments, at times many moments, when the mind does become more settled. And what a relief that is. In daily life, we're so constantly bombarded by sense contacts, stimulated by sights and sounds and tastes and smells and physical sensations, mental activity, impinging on our consciousness thousands of times a second. And we don't even recognize the impact of all that until we have an experience of its absence, when the mind does become settled, absorbed, unified into just one experience. So the awakening factor of samadhi gives us our whole, gives our whole nervous system a rest. And it's deeply satisfying nourishing, at times even blissful. And right there is one of the potential challenges of developing samadhi. Because it can be experienced as so blissful, it's easy to get attached to it. It can become an end in itself, which is actually a dead end, if we get diverted into just chasing after those pleasant experiences for their own sake. We need to keep remembering that the purpose of samadhi is not just to bliss out, but to use that stability of mind to support ever-deepening insight. Now, given the causal connection between all of these awakening factors, that absorbing and gathering and steadying of the mind into samadhi then eventually ripens into the last awakening factor of upekha, or equanimity. 
We've said a little bit about equanimity already in relation to the Brahma-Vihara, because as you know, it's also the last of the four heart qualities. And here, in the context of the awakening factors, just a simple definition to get us started, equanimity basically means balance, the balance of the heart-mind that's completely at ease. When equanimity is fully developed, there's no wanting anything, there's no not wanting anything, there's no clinging, there's no resisting, no movement towards or away from anything at all. And it's the capacity to simply be with what is in a state of deep acceptance and peace. And on perhaps a slightly more mundane level, one way that I've been thinking of equanimity in the context of my own practice is as elasticity. So elasticity is the capacity to flex and to stretch and to return to shape. In the US, um, people talk about someone being bent out of shape. People get bent out of shape by being angry or reactive in different ways. And that phrase, I think, implies the opposite of equanimity. It implies stiffness, rigidity, brittleness. But equanimity helps us to respond rather than react. So instead of getting bent out of shape, it's more like we become a shape shifter. We're able to respond fluidly to whatever is appropriate in whatever situation we're faced with. Similar to tranquility, though, at first equanimity can be slightly disconcerting because we're so conditioned, even addicted, to the highs and lows and dramas of life. So much so that the steady evenness of the equanimous mind can feel foreign when we first encounter it. But as I've been emphasizing through this whole talk, What helps us to understand how to navigate this new territory is to familiarize ourselves with the terrain of each of these awakening factors. And the crucial first step is learning to recognize them for what they are, even if at first they're just little buds, as Bikunalio likes to say, because little buds have the power to bloom, to fruit, and eventually to produce great trees. Every one of those kauri in the forest out there, at one stage, was just a tiny little seed. So may we all continue cultivating these little buds, recognizing the flowers, harvesting the fruits, and tasting freedom. Thank you for your attention. Let's... Close by chanting the sharing of blessings together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.